you want to make sure that you don't inadvertently request another company's confidential information in asking employees to write down their previous inventions. Welcome to GovCon Live. This is the fifth episode of our series on risk prevention strategies. Companies often hire employees to develop new products, improve processes, create new technologies, and develop new markets. But how should employers address the ownership of intellectual property created by their employees in the course of their employment? In this episode, Sarah Nash and Camilla Hundley, attorneys in Palermo Maza's Labor and Employment and Litigation and Dispute Resolution Groups, sit down to discuss vital steps employers should take to minimize the risk of losing their rights. Before we join the discussion, we have some business to handle. This podcast is for informational purposes only. We're not rendering legal advice. Your unique facts and circumstances could change the advice that would apply, and the rapidly changing nature of the law may cause the information in this podcast to become outdated. Let's get started. Good afternoon, everyone. Glad to have you here. Today, we're going to be talking about risk prevention strategies, ownership of employee-developed inventions, and intellectual property, everyone's favorite topic. I'm Sarah Nash. I'm a partner in the Polero Mazza Labor and Employment Practice. We often deal with issues of intellectual property in our group, dealing with anything from non-disclosure agreements, uh, confidentiality agreements, um, and we'll talk about some of the other provisions that can really make sure that you're protecting your uh, property as you deal with employees in the workplace. And I am also joined by Camilla Hundley here today. I'll let Camilla introduce herself. Hi, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Camilla Hundley. I am in the litigation group at Polarimaza. Um, I, unfortunately, by the time that I get around to these agreements, there's often already, so hopefully you can get some takeaways today to start looking at your own employee agreement, or if you don't have one already, start thinking about what you need. Um, to avoid having to give somebody like me a call. So at Plera Mazza, as you can tell by now, we have a labor and employment practice and a litigation practice. We also have government contracts practice and business and transactions. And we deal with any number of issues uh, raised, generating from intellectual property, which really touches on all of our groups, anywhere from trademarks and trademark registrations uh, to non-solicitation agreements, non-compete agreements, and enforcement issues. Um, so let's, let's dive right into the topic of today. Today, we're going to be focusing on really the different types of intellectual property that might be created by employees and what companies can do to make sure that they are keeping on to that ownership and protecting their IP. There's a lot of different types of IP. It's not just um, trademarks. It's not just copyright. It's not just workspace for hire. So Camilla is going to go over um, some of the types that you want to keep an eye out for. And it's not one size fits all. There's often going to be different practices and policies that a company might want to uh, impose in order to protect different types of rights. So we'll go over just making sure that everybody's on the same page of what those entail. Um, as with anything, uh, 
in the legal world, a lot of this is going to focus on agreements and making sure that your agreements have appropriately uh, tailored themselves to protecting company property, protecting work made for hire. So we'll go over how you assign that ownership and how you make sure that uh, folks are operating within a way that can reasonably be protected when they leave employment. We'll also talk about protecting your confidential information and trade secrets. This can vary by industry, so it's important to have a good understanding of the type of information that you would like to protect. And then finally, we'll go over some of the best practices when you're onboarding and offboarding employees. Again, this is one of those areas where it's really going to be dependent on the type of industry that you're in, the type of employees that we're looking at. Um, and generally, you just want to make sure that you're drafting your agreements with all of those practices in mind, not just because it's best practice, but because it can really save you some headaches down the road, um, as Camilla, I'm sure, will go over in our next slide. All right, so getting an understanding of what employee-created intellectual property is, it's important to remember that the general rule is the inventor or the creator of intellectual property ordinarily holds the rights to that IP. So usually by virtue of creating it, it belongs to you. However, one major exception that intellectual property employees create in the course of their employment or that is specially ordered or commissioned by their employer will belong to their employer. So in both these cases, although the employee developed the intellectual property, it actually belongs to their employer. Um, and before we get too far along, it's important to keep in mind for the rest of this presentation that this exception applies only to employees and not independent contractors. Um, and that I'm sure Sarah can echo is an entirely different presentation for another day. Um, but just keeping in mind that these rules that we're going to discuss are for employees and not for those independent contractors that you hire. So what is intellectual property? It can be almost anything. It can be music, a novel, an advertising slogan, software code, inventions, um, anything that really adds value or that you might be selling that is not a tangible piece of property. Um, but like physical property, intellectual property is subject to ownership and that ownership is recognized through property rights. So ordinarily you think of a laptop it belongs to you. Nobody else can take it. How do you keep, what are your rights when you have intellectual property? Um, it's going to be things like being authorized to make copies of that intellectual property, to distribute or sell it, to make derivative works that are based on that property, um, or to otherwise perform the work in public. And it also gives you the right to recover if your property is improperly used or without authorization. So, you can imagine that it's important to understand whether IP belongs to your employees or to you as the employer, because you want to avoid disputes when that employee eventually leaves their employment and tries to take that IP with them, or otherwise tries to seek some type of compensation or remedies from you for using the IP that they develop. I'm just going to jump in really quickly. Um, when it comes to confidential information and trade secrets, part of what we're looking to do here is make sure that that IP is protected. And one of the ways that courts will look to whether information is actually confidential is the steps that companies have taken in order to protect that information. So if you're not subjecting your employees to confidentiality agreements, if you're not making clear that certain information that they have is a trade secret, 
you could lose those rights down the road. So that's just another reason for why it's really important to have well-defined uh, definitions of what constitutes confidential information and just expectations for how employees are to treat that information. Thanks, Sarah. Got a little ahead of myself because when we're looking at these rules as to what determines who owns employee-created intellectual property, it's important to keep in mind what type of intellectual property your employees are creating. Um, and Sarah kind of got at this, that there's different categories. So you're going to have inventions that are protected by patents, um, and that's going to allow the inventors, and whether that inventor is you or the employee, <laughs> uh, to control the manufacturing, use, and sale of the idea. Um, copyrights are going to pro create protective works. They will protect creative works. Um, and this is the more broad category. It's going to be things like literary works, dramatic, musical, artistic works. And I think where it'll come up pretty often for a lot of our listeners today is software code is copyrightable. Um, the third category is trademarks, words, phrases, logos associated with the companies, you know, with Coca-Cola Red. Um, and lastly, our trade secrets with Sarah just touched on. Um, so keeping in mind the different types of intellectual property, what are the tests that we're going to look to to decide who it belongs to? Um, so the first general category is going to be the course employment test for copyrights. And the rule here is that if an employee creates new intellectual property as part of their job, the employer owns that intellectual property. So what we're going to be really looking at here is whether or not the employee had a duty to create that property as part of their employment duties. Ideas that stem from their employment duties will generally belong to the employer. Um, but on the other hand, if it's created by the employee as a hobby or outside of what they're normally assigned to do, even within the company, it will be owned by the employee. So we're going to be really looking at here the role that the employee played at the company and whether their ideas stem from that role. And that's for the type of creative work like software coding, writing, articles, um, that type of copyrightable work. For patents, things like inventions, the test here is whether it was made for hire. Um, so if an employee was hired to invent something specific or to solve a problem, basically the rule can be boiled down to if an employer specifically requests that its employees develop an invention, that invention belongs to the employer. It's important to keep in mind that this is a little narrower in scope than copyright. Um, if an employee is hired to develop a new keyboard and instead they create a new mouse, that might be um, because they were not specifically asked to create that mouse, it might not belong to their employer, even though you could argue that it was within their job duties. So you can see how those are similar, but not quite identical tests. Camilla, do you think that this sort of lends itself to this idea that it really makes sense to keep an eye on your workforce um, and just make sure that folks are being supervised and having regular check-ins as you go through sort of the steps of creating something? Absolutely. Um, and also ensuring that what you define to be their duties and what they understand to be their duties is in alignment and that when it does change in the employer's eyes, the employee recognize that also. Um, because maybe that employee that was hired to develop a keyboard was all of a sudden working on mouses at the same time, but you haven't checked in with them to identify what their roles are. Um, it is important and we'll see also that you outline what their duties are, what they're working on. Just keep that up to date, both for you and the employee throughout the course of their employment. So we're going to put these to the test with some examples. Um, so I'm going to 
launch some polls for a couple of hypotheticals. So the first one is we have a national retailer that is, they are like an inventory uh, for a brick and mortar fashion store called Glam Shop. They're a national retail company and they hire Bob to develop software to track their store inventories. Um, in the first scenario, Bob develops software code to track incoming shipments to Glam Shop warehouses in real time. Who do you all think this code belongs to? So if you thought that this code belonged to Glam Shop, you are correct. Um, because Bob is a software developer and he's developed this code to be used by Glam Shop, it was developed in the course of his employment and likely belongs to Glam Shop. So what if instead, not Bob, but a cashier at one of Glam Shop stores developed software as a hobby? And in his spare time, he developed software that also tracks shipment and it's even more efficient than Bob's. Do you think that this belongs to the cashier, to Glam Shop, or somebody else? Or to Bob. Or to Bob. <laughs> so in this instance, um, keep in mind, what. remember our first question is, what are the employee's job duties? As a cashier, his job duties are work at the front desk, maybe occasionally stock inventory, but his, his job duties in that role are not to be developing software. So even though this is ultimately going to benefit his employer, it was not probably not developed in the course of his employment, which means that it belongs to the cashier. Um, and what that also means is the cashier can present it to Glam Shop and say, hey, even though I work for you, if you want to use this, you have to buy it from me. Um, so that's how you can see why it's really important to decide who owns what was created. Um, and ultimately, it would benefit Glam Shop, but it's not theirs to have. OK, so going back to Bob, he's our software developer employed by Glam Shop. He is a tennis enthusiast, and in his spare time, he develops a phone app that records players' swings and generates tips to help improve them. Do we think that this belongs to Bob, to Glam Shop, or to somebody else? And if you thought that this belongs to Bob and not Glam Shop, you would probably be correct. Um, this tennis app, even though he is a software developer by trade, has nothing to do with Glam Shop. So this is his own creation that he gets to copyright and sell it in the app store on his own time and he does not owe anything to glam shop um, but how does that change if at all if he used a glam shop issued laptop and a coding platform to develop that phone app is this enough to give glam shop a right to ownership over the app and this is interesting because most of the people who submitted the poll thought that this would be enough to give that using a laptop and coding platform owned by glam shop would be enough to give them ownership over the app um, and that actually is probably not enough. Um, the fact that an employee used the employer's equipment usually is not enough by itself to show that the employer should own the intellectual property. Glam Shop might be able to discipline Bob for wrongfully using their computer and software development language, but they do not, in of just those facts, do not have any ownership over the app. Um, and that is what brings us to our next point to show why it's so important to not rely on these basic principles and rules, and instead make sure that you have a really strong and clear employment agreement so that you are getting ownership over what you feel you should have in terms of intellectual property developed by your employees. So employers should not rely on assumptions of ownership alone for the reasons we just saw illustrated by the examples. Um, from an employer standpoint, rather than attempting to rely on a shop right, 
or assuming that the or just assuming that the employee was hired to invent something, it's always better to have the employee sign a written intellectual property assignment agreement so that that is clearly outlined for both the employee and the employer. It's going to avoid surprising outcomes and disputes. And when those disputes do come up, they're going to be a lot easier and therefore less expensive to resolve. Um, so when you're drafting these agreements, um, you want to have certain things that you want to sure, be sure you're addressing and clearly outlining. So the first of those being relation to job duties is what the employee develops, to what extent are they related to their job duties in order to be owned by the employer? Do you want employees to acknowledge that anything they write or create during the time of their employment belongs to the business, um, regardless of how it's related to their duties? I will say that you can try to write that, um, but we'll get later to keep in mind that state law probably will not let you do that. Um, but do you want to limit IP to the nature of your business so that in the instance with the cashier, although that wasn't necessarily his job duty because it was related to Glam Shop, it would be owned by Glam Shop. That might be something that you can put into writing. Um, or do you want to limit to, to the nature of job duties only? So what is our scope of ownership is something that we're going to want to clearly outline at the outfront in our agreement. What is the impact of employer resources? So like in the example where Bob was using his company laptop and his uh, coding platform, do you want employees to acknowledge that anything they develop using employer resources, regardless of how it's related to their duties, ultimately belongs to the employer? Um, and keep in mind that resources can include both company equipment and time. So even if Bob was using his own laptop, if he's doing it during company hours, does that give Lamtrop a right to own it? Um, that is something that you can outline in your agreement. The next issue is reliance on previously developed employee IP. Um, and we see this with software development. We see it in a lot of instances where part of the employee's value is that they have their own intellectual property that they can contribute to make their employer's um, intellectual property more efficient or better. Um, so in that case, it's absolutely critical to define the line between the employee-owned original IP and the employer-owned new products that build upon that IP. Part of that can be accomplished through a disclosure requirement. So a disclosure requirement would be an addendum where the employee is going to identify all intellectual property that he or she has a prior ownership in prior to commencement of his or her employment with the company. So you have a real clear line. This is the code that I own. I have a copyright to this already coming in. And anything that I develop afterwards is not going to affect the employee's ownership of that code. However, anything that they develop thereafter will belong to the employer. So you can see how you kind of put a red line right at the time of employment so that it's very clear to you or anybody else who needs to decide later what belongs to the employee and what belongs to the employer. Um, and this is Something that should be updated frequently and regularly, um, you should require employees to continually and promptly disclose intellectual property created outside of the realm of their employment relationship. And you should also require employees to cooperate and assist the employer in obtaining copyright or patent rights if it falls within the scope of employer IP. I have seen this personally come up in situations where the employer actually had a really strong and clear IP agreement, um, but they did not take the time to disclose and have the employee identify what belong, what IP belonged to them before they came to their employment and what IP was developed thereafter that belonged to their employer. Um, unfortunately, in that situation, the employee passed away. So we didn't have the employee there to, 
advocate for either him or his employer what code it was a software code issue what code belonged to him versus what code belongs to the employer i think in hindsight if we had had the employee when he signed up when he was hired identify exactly what code was his we could have avoided a very expensive and long drawn out lawsuit where ultimately the employer was characterized as this big bad guy that was trying to steal all this IP that belonged to its employee. And that's really not what we were doing. Um, so that's the type of thing that you want to make sure is defined at the outset so it does not become an issue later on. One um, caveat to add there, Camilla, you want to make sure that you don't inadvertently request another company's confidential information in asking employees to write down their previous inventions. So you just want to make sure that when you're asking for them to disclose uh, prior IP, you make clear that they are not to write down information that belongs to a third party that could inadvertently violate a NDA or a confidentiality agreement. Right. Yeah, that's a really good point. And also, I guess, hope that your employee also had a very clear IP agreement with their prior employers so they understand the difference between what belongs to them and what does not. Relatedly, in case you're going to have a dispute, um, you want to make sure that you have a remedies provision that allows things like a temporary restraining order, preliminary and permanent injunctions so that you can enforce the performance of these intellectual property clauses, even as if a lawsuit becomes necessary, that lawsuit is being performed. Um, you want to make sure that you have appropriate remedies to protect your property in the interim. Um, something important to keep in mind is that no matter how artfully and specific and negotiated your intellectual property agreement is drafted, if you do not have consideration, it may be invalid. Um, so consideration is a fancy way of saying that the employer needs to give the employee something in exchange for the employee giving up his or her rights to the IP. In most cases, the job position itself is sufficient, um, but that's only if you are making sure that you're getting these IP agreements signed when you hire the employee. So it's a good idea to go back and look at your employment agreements and make sure that they have an IP agreement. The agreement should reflect that, but for the employee's execution of the intellectual property agreement, the company will not employ that individual. So you can see very clearly that the IP agreement is in exchange for the job itself. Um, if you already have employees who do not currently have IP agreements, that's okay. It's never too late to enter into one, but you want to make sure that you do have that consideration. Um, so you might need to provide something in addition. It might need to be something like a promotion, a one-time bonus, a grant of restricted stock options. It's important to keep in mind that whether or not something is sufficient consideration is very state by state. So you want to make sure that you're complying with state laws in all aspects of these agreements, um, but especially here, because like I said, this can invalidate your entire agreement, even if everything is perfectly fine. You raise a really good point, Camilla, with respect to state uh, by state requirements. The difference between West Virginia, where they do not consider continued employment to be sufficient consideration, and Virginia, where they do consider continued employment to be sufficient consideration, could be the difference between being having an enforceable agreement and an unenforceable agreement. So whenever you're drafting these, ultimately, and you can say that the state law that applies is um, what is designated by the company, but ultimately when you're looking at employment agreements and relationships, the state law that will control 
is going to generally be the state where the employee is employed. Um, there are some caveats where laws are generally uh, similar and choice of law doesn't really have a big impact on the outcome. But in most circumstances where you're looking at these, the state of the employment really is going to make a big difference. Absolutely. Um, and Sarah, thinking about um, people who are working remotely, does that add even an extra element if somebody's employed by a company in Maryland, their office was in Virginia, and now they're working from their home in California? <laughs> yes. Uh, great, great question. And um, that it's come up a lot in the pandemic, right? Because folks are, for the first time, working remotely um, more often than not. And some employees don't even know that they need to notify their employer if they move because they, um, I mean, they're still performing the work from a laptop as far as they're concerned, but it really could make a big difference, especially with states like California that have really strong employment laws, even in circumstances where the employer may only employ one employee. So I guess twofold, you want to make sure that employees notify you as soon as they move. Um, knowing that you can always reject their request if needed. Um, and you want to make sure that you're keeping up to date and uh, reviewing those engagements and those employment agreements to comply as they work remotely because it does make a difference where they're working from. Great. Yeah, so that wraps up, I think, all of the considerations to keep in mind. But just one thing to add is to expect, especially in certain industries, that these intellectual property agreements maybe heavily negotiated by employees. Um, you can imagine somebody might feel like an employer is overstepping to protect what they consider to be their intellectual property. Um, so just it's an expectation, but that's another reason to make sure that you're familiar with the state laws so you know to what extent you can validly ask to have ownership over the property that your employees create. So, Camilla, thank you for going over like in detail sort of what it takes to assign ownership rights and make sure that employees um, and employers are on the same page about you know, what's company property, what's employee property. In addition to those sort of defined ownership rights, there are some other critical steps that employers can take to make sure that their uh, intellectual property and their proprietary information is protected down the road. The most common way to protect this information will be to rely on non-disclosure or confidentiality agreements, which, um, as everyone probably knows, limit the extent to which employees can share confidential information with third parties. When you are drafting these agreements, it's important to keep certain considerations in mind. You want to make sure that you tailor the definition of confidential information to apply specifically to the information that is proprietary to the company. We will often see uh, NDAs that are overly broad when it comes to certain types of information. A good example is when it comes to uh, including employee salary information in what's considered confidential. Under uh, federal law that applies to contractors, federal contractors in particular, and more generally in a uh, National Labor Relations Act context, it will often be unlawful to prohibit employees from discussing their salary. 
It's just something that has been legislated over the years that employees have a right to discuss their terms and conditions of employment. You want to make sure that a confidentiality agreement that you have in place does not prohibit employees from engaging in this protected contact conduct. So it's important to really just make sure that you have a good understanding of what you consider confidential, especially given the industry that you're working in. Often, things that are really important in the confidential uh, space are going to be customer lists and contact information in addition to that specific work product that you want to make sure that does not fall into um, unauthorized hands. When you're drafting a NDA, you also want to make sure that you are not inadvertently, this actually applies to an employment agreement in general, but inadvertently creating a contract for a term uh, of uh, years. So generally in the United States, when a individual is employed, they are employed at will, which means that they can terminate their employment agreement with or without notice, as can the employer. And there is no obligation to provide a reason for that termination, as long as it's not a termination for some unlawful reasons, such as discriminatory uh, violations of Title VII. You want to make sure in your employment agreements that you are reaffirming that employees are employed at will. Uh, without addressing this, you could inadvertently create a, essentially an employment contract that entitles them to continued employment, and no one wants to do that unnecessarily. It's also important when you're thinking about these NDAs to make sure that you include equitable remedies uh, that would entitle a company to uh, seek injunctive relief or seek damages in the event that an employee uh, violates the terms of that NDA. Generally, this is just going to make your life a lot easier. So it's important to have certain bells and whistles in those agreements as you're, as you're drafting them. I touched already on the fact that a lot of these are governed by state law. Um, so you want to make sure that you have a good understanding of the state that you're in and whether uh, the, these agreements are going to be enforceable. Generally, it's just a lot easier if you work these into contractual obligations rather than just standard common law obligations. Next, I'm going to talk a little bit about non-solicitation agreements and non-compete obligations. These are an important way to protect confidential information because of the fact that employees who have been employed with you often are not always going to stay employed with you. So they may take their um, services elsewhere to join another company. What companies generally want to avoid is dealing with a situation where their employee leaves and takes confidential information with them and provides that confidential information to a competitor. That's generally frowned upon, right? With this type of non-competition or non-solicitation agreement, you can limit employees' ability to take that confidential information and turn it to the advantage of a competitor. And the way that you can do that is by having these agreements be narrowly tailored to protect the trade secrets of the company and the goodwill that a company has invested in the employee. Especially, essentially, that's the idea of you've invested time and energy into training this employee and helping them to be an expert in their field. And due to that 
effort that you've expended, you expect them not to turn around and provide services in direct competition with your services to your own clients. It's really important, again, that you're looking at state right and state uh, law in these circumstances because there are a number of states that are very anti-non-competition agreements. An example is California flat out prohibits them. Soon in D.C., there will be a blanket ban on non-competes. So it's important to understand where you're working to make sure that uh, these are not going to be invalidated by state law. I'll also mention that in some states, they specifically make it unlawful to try to enforce or to enter into an unenforceable non-compete. And companies can, in fact, be penalized for attempting to enter into such an agreement. So it's not just that you can't enforce it all the time. Sometimes it's also that you could be penalized um, or you could be forced to pay penalties for attempting to enforce an unenforceable agreement. When you're thinking about non-competes and non-solicits, it's also important to consider uh, the duration of those agreements. Generally, one to two years is reasonable. Uh, In most states, although depending on the circumstances, you may be able to justify a longer term. Um, And again, in some states, you can't justify any term of years because uh, there's a blanket ban on non-competes. I'm going to talk a little bit about the specific steps that you can take in bringing employees on board and offboarding employees to make sure that you are uh, engaging in further behavior that will protect uh, confidential information and intellectual property. You want to make sure, for example, that when you're onboarding folks that, and we touched on this earlier, that they are not bringing with them a third party's confidential information. If you do inadvertently use another company's confidential information that could open you up to liability for interference with uh, business contracts, uh, trade secret laws, violations. Uh, And so generally, it's very, very bad. And you do not want to employ someone who is sharing confidential information that belongs to a third party. So generally, when we are drafting offer letters for our clients, we encourage them to include a provision that just makes very clear that employees are not to share third-party confidential information. Um, When you're bringing folks on board, you also want to uh, notify employees at the offset that they will be um, bound or obligated to sign on to an NDA or non-compete or whatever a PIIA um, proprietary information and inventions agreement at the offset so that they understand that this is a condition of their employment uh, to be signing these agreements. You want to make sure that you identify what particular information is important to you as you're trying to figure out what agreements to put in place. If you are a uh, grocery store vendor, that decision is going to be very different from if you are a cybersecurity expert firm. So again, I'm going to repeat this a couple times, but one size fits all is not going to work in these circumstances. So if you just pulled an agreement off the internet, chances are you're still going to want to tailor it to your own business needs and your own business considerations, not just for your industry, but also for the type of employee 
that will be signing on to the agreement. So uh, your rank and file workforce is likely going to have a different uh, agreement than the C-suite might have just by virtue of the access that different employees will have to confidential information and how they're using that information in their day-to-day business activities. You also want to make sure that you are treating your confidential information in a way that demonstrates that it is proprietary. Giving everyone access to information uh, is a great way to lose trade secret or confidential information protection. A better option would be to reduce access only to those who need to have the information. And that's where we talked a little bit about remote employees. It's really important that, especially with folks working remotely nowadays, to just make very clear the information security processes that the firm has in place and the expectations for how employees are to treat proprietary information. It's always a good idea, for example, to make sure that employees are performing work on a password-protected laptop, that they do not provide others with access to that laptop, and that generally they uh, are following whatever policies and procedures the company has put in place for proprietary information. This is especially important, as you can imagine, where you're providing services to a client and they might have their own confidential information that needs to be protected. You do not want to be in a circumstance where your employees have inadvertently disclosed confidential information of a third party because that's when things can get really messy. Another consideration as you're working through some of these ideas of how to protect information is background checks for employees. If employees will be dealing with sensitive confidential information, uh, it might be appropriate to have a background check run. Um, this is already going to be completed in situations, obviously, where folks are dealing with top secret or other sensitive information. It's just important to remember that that's sometimes a reasonable thing to expect to run a background check. A number of states have restrictions on how you can use information found in a background check, so you just want to make sure that you're doing it in a lawful way. And then lastly, you also want to, when it comes to onboarding, make sure that you have clear policies in place around data production, around accessing information from a remote work site, around the consequences of what happens if employees are to be found to have misused information. When you have those policies in place, it's going to be much easier to defend or to at least find out where the system broke and where you need to go back and maybe fix something that hasn't been working the way it was intended. This also works on the back end, not just when you're hiring folks, but when you are offboarding them as well. You want to make sure that you have a clear termination process and checklist for when individuals are leaving. We've been dealing a lot with uh, employees who leave the company and just disappear and do not return the laptop or the cat court card or whatever it is that they have that allowed them to perform the work. Often, more often than not, it's in situations where the employee may be left on unfavorable terms. Maybe they were terminated and are bitter about that. It's much easier to go after that property when there is an employment agreement in place that specifically addresses company property and specifically addresses the steps that the employee must engage in 
when they are returning company property to the company, making it clear, for example, that they must return their laptop or their cell phone or whatever property keys that they have by no later than, uh, pick an arbitrary date, five days after um, their termination or sooner if they have access to some sensitive information. It's important to make these guidelines clear. We often do uh, run into questions about whether you can make a deduction from an employee's final pay for their failure to return certain property. Again, I'm starting to sound like a broken record. This really is going to be dependent on state law. A lot of states do not per permit, even with an agreement, a employer to deduct from final pay. Um, it runs into FLSA violations. That said, there are things that you can do to incentivize employees to return the equipment, so it's important that you uh, think about how best to do that. You also might want to consider, as employees are leaving, uh, reminding them of their continuing obligations. So if they did sign an agreement however many years ago, it might be worth saying, we wish you the best in your future endeavors. However, as a reminder, these are the continuing obligations that you have after you leave the company, we've provided a copy for your review. Uh, this just makes sure that there aren't any employees who, like, gen, if you've been employed for a long time, maybe you are not 100% familiar with all of your ongoing obligations. It's good to just remind folks because most people want to do the right thing most of the time. Lastly, when you're offboarding folks, uh, you just want to make sure that you have clear understanding of expectations moving forward and of their understanding of what confidential information they had access to. We talked at the beginning about making sure that it is well-defined, um, the works made for hire and how that, how an agreement can really make clear what is the company's property versus what is the employee's. I don't know if we talked about this in particular, but it's also important. A number of states have legislated on this very issue and have said specifically, if you're going to have a work made for hire or a IP uh, provision in your contract, you need to specifically reference this law. I know California is one of them. I believe Utah has some quirky rules around the issue. So especially when it comes to IP provisions and talking about inventions, you want to make sure that you have the right language in your agreement uh, to ensure that you are checking all the right boxes to meet those statutory requirements. Again, you do not want to rely on assumptions of ownership. As uh, we went over in those polling questions earlier, it is very easy to lose the presumption that the company owns ownership. And so you want to make sure that you have an agreement that clearly addresses those circumstances where an employee is uh, not the owner of the property. You also want to make sure that you are complying with those state requirements because it's very easy in this, in this space to overlook a requirement that can automatically disqualify the provisions in the agreement. So you want to make sure that you're complying with those state laws. Again, no agreement is one size fits all. Just because your non-solicit uh, agreement works in Utah does not mean that it's going to work in Washington state. States more and more are legislating on a lot of these issues. Um, 
In the federal space, we're seeing indications there have been a number of bills that have been uh, raised over the years that are trying to make non-competes unlawful on a federal level. And so you want to make sure that you're staying up to date because we're seeing a lot of legislation on these issues. Maryland and Virginia both passed laws last year that invalidate non-competes for low-wage workers. And so we're seeing a lot of employees or states follow suit in terms of limiting the extent to which you can hold employees to restrictive covenants like that. Then lastly, you want to make sure that you are actively protecting your company intellectual property throughout the employment relationship. Camilla touched on the fact that you should regularly ask employees if they have additional inventions that they've created outside the scope of their employment. It's important to make sure that you have an eye on what your employees are doing, what they're doing specifically for the company, and how you might need to update your policies to most effectively protect that information. So yeah, certainly if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out to either Camilla or me. Um, we love talking about this stuff. That's why we're in the fields that we are. And so hopefully this was a hopeful primer on intellectual property and gave you some ideas for how to more effectively protect your information on a go-forward basis. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a Polero Maza production and music credits go to bensound.com. Please subscribe to hear more on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts.